clubhouse. What began as a journey had become a retreat into the unknown. We were backing into the abyss. So worried our sins would follow us. We didn't bother watching where we walked. And behind us was a cliff. Welcome to Pod Clubhouse's coverage of 1883, a prequel series to Yellowstone. I'm Caroline. And I'm Mike. Tonight we're discussing episode two of 1883. The episode was called Behind Us a Cliff. Tonight's episode was written by Taylor Sheridan and directed by Ben Richardson. Ben is also the show's director of photography. A few days before the series premiere, we were given the chance to participate in virtual roundtable press interviews with all of the core cast members. Last week, we had our interview with Tim McGraw. Stay tuned to the end of tonight's episode because we're going to be playing our roundtable interview with Faith Hill and Isabel May, who play Margaret and Elsa Dutton on the show. Reminders, you guys, that this is not a recap and we're not going to go step by step throughout the episode, but we're just assuming you've watched it. So if you haven't, pause and Please go over and watch the episode and come on back and discuss with us. One thing I want to discuss, Caroline, right off the top of the bat, because we're seeing it in Facebook groups and it's on Reddit and the bulk of the negativity that I have seen towards the show thus far is Mm -hmm. in relation to historical inaccuracies and things that maybe aren't exactly right for the time or don't make sense. You know, maybe they're using modern tack for the horses that wouldn't have been available in 1883. Curious your feelings on it and and also maybe clarify how we're going to approach the show, specifically those kinds of issues as they come up. Does that kind of thing normally bother you when you're watching a show or specifically a period piece? If, if something is, you know, if they're wearing, you know, Nike sneakers in, in 1883 <laughs> or something like that? Well, it all depends on how the show is presented to me. If it's coming at me and they're saying this is historical fiction, then I am going to be looking for things like that. For me, this is a story of a family and it is fiction happening in history different to me than calling it historical fiction. So for myself with this particular show, I'm not looking for those small little details. I'm more interested in the overall story. So that's where my eye's going to be. If you're trying to give me a biopic or, you know, tell me the story of the Civil War or anything like that, then yeah, I'm, I'm probably going to nitpick for historical accuracy. But if you're telling a story, like you said, that's set in a time period, I'm going to be less less concerned about that. Here are a couple of examples. I think it's an interesting discussion. Why are the Duttons coming from Tennessee to Texas to start a journey north versus going to the traditional Oregon Trail starting point, which was in Kansas and and some other places along that way? It's something that I think that as watchers, it's a smart thing to pay attention to and wonder about. I think that it's completely fair to ask the question. This particular part of the story, I'm hoping that they're going to reveal more because like we had flashbacks in this one. 
Mm-hmm. So I'm hoping they're going to reveal more about the decision to do that. And so I'm willing to say for this podcast to like put a pin in it, put it up on the corkboard. And as we collect some more details about how exactly they decided to do this trip, then we can try to understand that and answer the question. I think it's a great question to raise, though. And we can yes. we can kind of, you know, tease it out about is this about railroad routes? Is this about the amount of money that they had? How far could the family get and how far could he get being alone on the wagon trail? Like, was that an easier route for him to do alone that direction? Don't know yet. Let's like kind of just put a pin in it and wait and see. I think another theory that we have to consider in this discussion is the herd, uh, the cattle question, because it's actually discussed in this episode, the fact that if you're going to be in Kansas, you're going to be paying $40 a head or Kansas prices for those New York City slickers that like their steaks. Maybe the thought was they were going to need food on this journey, right? We know he shows up in Fort Worth with empty wagons as if he's mm-hmm. going to fill it with supplies. So maybe the idea was in Texas was going to be the more economical place to fill up your supplies. I like that theory a lot. And trust in Taylor Sheridan and his writers a little bit and see where they go with the story. But I applaud, you know, audiences for giving, um, you know, a moment to go back and look what would have been the traditional route for the Oregon Trail. And I'm glad that they are asking these questions. It shows that everyone's invested. At the same time, I think there's a way to be invested and continue to collect the clues. And there's a way to be invested and just complain. And I think we're going to go more the detective route on this. I think so, too. We are not going to call the show out if they are not using the correct saddles and uh, tack that were in use. I, I bring this up. I saw this in a couple of Reddit groups, people attacking the show because the horse tack being used wouldn't have been available in 1883. It affects my enjoyment of the show not one bit. I'm sorry if it takes you out of the moment and you can't enjoy the show if they're using the wrong bits and and buckles. Uh, another example which is going to come up in people talking about the tonight's uh, episode, the character that Billy Bob plays, who I'm calling Marshall Billy Bob uh, Thornton in this episode. He's playing Jim Courtright. Jim Courtright was a real human being. His name was Timothy Isaiah Courtright. He really was the marshal of Fort Worth, Texas, specifically the devil half acre that we see in this episode. But he wasn't the marshal of Fort Worth of this area in 1883. He left that position in 1879. I think for historical purposes, let's give them a little bit of leeway let's not nail the show to being historically inaccurate and not worth telling because they have uh, stretched out his marshalship for four extra years and, and there's plenty of times when we have examples where stories have pulled you know historical figures here or there and it's perfectly valid to to instead highlight the character and not so much that the timing doesn't exactly overlap it's been done plenty so i'm i'm okay with it i'm okay because i think that this character is fascinating right so if we don't bring something up it's not necessarily that we didn't notice it or that we're unaware how about that? We read the groups. We do our own research. General George Meade didn't become a major uh, a brigadier general, a two-star general, until like the last year of the war, I believe. He was not a two-star general like he's shown in this episode in 1862 when this episode uh, begins in the flashback. I guess because they're not affecting the story, right? This is a story of the Dutton family moving to Montana. These kinds of things, I think, are just kind of helping in the story and not necessarily detracting from it. I hope it doesn't take you guys out of the story if they get some things like this wrong. Taylor Sheridan has said on the record that he is working with a team of historians to try and be as accurate as possible. As always, it is a work of fiction. This is the Duttons are not a real family. So he's going to take license with things from time to time. And 
Well, and I'll, I'll even throw out um, on the prop side of things, because we are friends with prop masters and we are friends with set decorators. We have Beth over at Decorating the Set from Hollywood to Your Home, a podcast here on Pod Clubhouse. We know that during COVID, this has been really difficult to get completely perfect items mm. on short notice. So it's possible, and I think it's fair, to give a little leeway that it may be very difficult right now with supply chains and everything else to get the exact right thing. Maybe just be a little bit lenient there. Right. And, and maybe stop and think before you go and post something very nasty on the Internet. Did it really <laughs> affect your enjoyment of the story? Because I have seen some horrendously vitriolic mm. kind of things written. But you know where you're not going to find nasty things written of that ilk about the show? Here. Where else? <laughs> where else on Facebook? You guys can come on over to our Facebook group, which is Yellowstone, 1883, and the four sixes, which is just 6666. <laughs> discussion and news group over on Facebook. Come on and join us. And we're being a way more laid back group. I know that there's a lot of Yellowstone groups out there and you guys have a lot of choices, but the talk thus far has been that we've been the most laid back group. So come on over and join us. We're uh, we're pretty easygoing folks. Uh, Caroline and I are some of the admins and some of our other Yellowstone friends are, are also admins. So yeah, it's a good time. Come over and talk with us. I want to turn to this episode, though, Behind Us a Cliff. Did any themes stand out for you in tonight's episode, the second outing of 1883, Caroline? Well, definitely freedom. I think that that's something that was very blatantly discussed. Um, you know, what is being free? And then, of course, you know, we have James being called a dreamer in the first episode a whole bunch. And now as things are getting a little bit rougher, a little bit unraveling here, there's this concept of dreams versus nightmares. And, and who is this a dream for and who is this becoming a nightmare for? Let's start there first, because I think that's a really interesting discussion, and it, it'll let us deal with Claire and uh, Mary Abel pretty early on, and so we don't have to then spend a lot of time in the rest of the discussion talking about them. I want to remind you and, and everyone listening about what was said about James Dutton and being a dreamer in episode one. So this is a clip from episode one. We weren't poor. We weren't desperate. The road west is filled with failures. Failure isn't what drove him. It was a dream. And the dream is coming true. Claire, in tonight's episode, makes such a pointed attempt to convince Margaret that James is a dreamer and this is not the dream. In fact, this is the nightmare scenario. This is the darkest timeline scenario for Claire as she sees it. She, she sees for all of them. And and so she has this clip where she's talking to her sister late night around the campfire. I don't recall anyone forcing me. Who the hell do you think you are? What is so funny? Honestly, Claire, I don't have the energy or the interest to continue this conversation. William. <laughs> He's a dreamer, Margaret. Always has been. And they never come true. It's coming true, Claire. No. This is not a dream. This is the nightmare. You'll see. 
Margaret looks at Claire and Claire looks at Margaret during that scene, there's a little bit of me that took away Margaret's reaction to hearing that. There's a part of her that maybe worries Claire is right here. We talked a little bit about this, that that Margaret is having so far to act as the grounded one while James mm-hmm. and Elsa are out on these this flight of fancy or maybe living this dream and Margaret is having to be the serious one. Is there a little bit of look in there that she's worried Claire may be right that this is the nightmare scenario? I think that it's fair for any one of the people on this journey to have doubts and have concerns. I mean, this is a treacherous journey with a whole lot of unknowns. I think it would be foolish if she were to be like, nope, everything's perfect and I love everything. Like, obviously, this is going to be a monumental task to get everybody where they're going healthy and safe. What you're seeing there is just that glint in her eye that it's acknowledging what she's saying. The nightmare portion, and specifically, I want to I focus on where she is questioning the idea of whether or not she was forced to come along. And I think that that goes so hand in hand with our conversation about freedom and choice and options. Did Claire have the freedom of choice in that situation? Yes, technically. But what were her options? Did she have any other viable option? And as we find out in her story, she has lost her seven children. She has lost her husband. This is not a situation where she has a lot of options. So in that case, no, she does not have freedom. She does not have both choice and options. It was cruel of Margaret to say that to her, that no one forced you to come along because especially woman to woman, I think there's something there that's like, don't do that to me. You know, don't don't try to make it seem like I had all these other choices that I could have done instead. And I just, you know, absentmindedly chose this one. Like, obviously, this was my only option here. So I think that it was cruel. But at the same time, Claire is the textbook definition of a nudge, man. Like she is going to poke the bear in so many ways in this episode that I mean, I don't blame anyone for the way that they respond to her. I mean, no matter how you skew it, I think she is the direct cause of her daughter's death. Yes. Uh, Margaret even says this when when she goes when she's having a conversation with James later on in the episode about the fact that James and all of them are going to ride out and hunt down and kill the bandits. She says, I don't know that they 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 certainly were looking for a fight, <laughs> but they didn't start it. I don't know that killing them is justice here. And James has that great line that justice doesn't figure into it, honestly, which is the most Wild West thing you can say, right? The, the justice doesn't figure into it. Were those men in mortal danger because she was throwing the rocks? Maybe, maybe, you know, a horse could have reared up and threw through one of the guys or could have injured one of them or whatever. But in reality, did they have the freedom of choice to just ride away? They did. I mean, they chose to pursue that fight with her. She 100% instigated it. Um, but I think that's where the justice has no factor here. It's like if there's men out here who know where we are and aren't willing to ride away, when there's a little sign of trouble, then we can't have those guys like knowing that and being here. Okay, maybe. Yes. But also they read it right that these were not men to trifle with. She absolutely instigates the situation. They're just watering the horses and she begins throwing big rocks at them and hitting them as well as their horses. You understand that these are dangerous men, and so you provoke them. Now, I'm not victim blaming here. I'm just saying we don't know how it would have panned out. Maybe these guys were going to start a fight either way after they watered their horses. It was just more efficient to do it first. But maybe they would have ran on, though, too. I'm guessing they would have moved on. I mean, I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt and saying, had they been given the opportunity to just water the horses, they would have moved on. I do think that. Right. 
I also think that they overreacted to what she did. Do I think she should have sure. thrown big rocks? No. But at the same time, like they could have, you know, they could have yelled at her. They could have even thrown something back at her. But throwing her down to the ground and punching her and doing all that, I mean, okay, this all gets much worse. But this gets us into the question, though, and I, and I bring it up morally, more because of the point where I feel like Claire is really fulfilling her own prophecy here. Mm-hmm. Her choices dictated a result that led to her seventh and final child being taken away from her and truly losing her own life, right? there, There's no way she doesn't. That's why James stands by with a shovel ready and doesn't actually try to interfere with her. Save her from what? Save her for what? Like her life effectively was over. It, as we learned, was essentially hanging on by the thinnest of strings, right? One out of seven children and, and already a widow. So she was already hanging on to this life by the thinnest of strands as is and so now with mary abel gone she truly has nothing left to live but she's also kind of the one who set those actions in motions the idea that she fulfilled her own prophecy of the conversation the night before that this isn't the dream this is the nightmare less than 24 hours later her nightmare had come true you and i talk about this all the time not related to the show we talk about karma and what we put out into the world it will come back to us one way or another good or bad claire is a direct lesson in that in this episode unfortunately and very sadly uh, here is a question i kept wrestling with and and i've every time I watched it, I found myself asking myself the same thing. Is hearing that she lost all seven children plus her husband, does that make her sympathetic and, and redeemed in the end? Or had the ship sailed too far already? Was was she such an unlikable character as finding that out when we find it out made it almost I, I don't care at this point. <laughs> I think that in other podcasts, you and I have also talked about the pain of losing one child and how we would possibly move on and what would possibly happen in our own lives. And given that she has gone through this seven times and a spouse, we have to underscore the level of bitterness and the level of loss, the level of just uh, giving up on the world, that the world is just not fair and not going to go her way. I think that she wasn't wrong to pick up the rocks. All of the people on the bank should have picked up weapons once those men were there and specifically asking where the head leader guy was, right? Because that implies they're kind of checking out the situation. It's kind of like who's home. I understand. Picking it up is different than throwing it, though. A thousand percent. Of course, that's where your self-fulfilling prophecy is dead on. She did start the fight that ended this whole thing going very badly for her. I do have more sympathy only because if we're going to be sad on our Christmas podcast about Tiny Tim and one child's life being lost, how could we not have some sympathy for Claire and for their family and everything that's happened? Tiny Tim (laughs) overlooking the water that he always... See, it's terrible. Don't talk about the ducks. Don't. (laughs) It will be so sad. Don't talk about... But that's the thing. If that can make you teary-eyed to talk about losing one little child... Have a little grace for Claire that she she is a lost soul. She is a hurt person. And hurt people hurt people. Y'all, you may not cry over the death of Mary Abel and Claire uh, in this episode, but you will cry if you listen to uh, Kermit the Frog talk about Tiny Tim and his final resting place in Muppet Christmas Carol. So if you if you need a cry at this time of year, go <laughs> go watch or just listen to our podcast episode where I play the clip like 19 times and we all cry <laughs> several times. 
curious about it. So, it, I mean, you know, we can understand that's that's a fascinating thing about this time in history. And maybe in general, people will say, you know what? It hasn't really changed. But I think it has the value we place on life in general. One person's life. How much do you value that? I mean, they go around in this episode and kill how many people, you yeah. know, and so lives are lost left and right all the time. Now, I think nowadays there's so much more stress on like every person special, every person matters mm -hmm. and all that kind of stuff. And this time it's like, you know, it's just how many are going to die within your family. You just want some amount to make it to the next generation. Well, just think back to how Thomas and Shay talk about how they're going to they're going to lose half of these migrants traveling north with them. They're, they're not mm -hmm. they're not questioning that. That's kind of their starting point of collateral damage that, you know, that they speak about as you speak about the weather, like half of these people at least are not making it to Oregon, at least. That's kind of startling, but it was a fact of these times though, people had such large families because infant mortality was a real issue. The wilds, man versus man versus man versus nature, man versus himself, right? All those themes mm -hmm. that we talked about in episode one that Tim McGraw and that Taylor Sheridan and, and Sam Elliott have all talked about, La Monica Garrett, those themes kept families small no matter how often you tried or how hard you tried. Go back to the support system, too, that's available in society and with and just how we thought about one another. I mean, no one is giving Claire any amount of, of understanding and, and uh, support about the fact that she's here under these circumstances. Like we said, Margaret just kind of threw that back in her face just now, yeah. you know, so there's that. And then just generally speaking, like she couldn't go as a woman and go, you know, make enough money for herself and raise her family by herself without her husband. Like there's a lot of structural things that we have to remember are missing here to actually allow anyone to successfully move forward. I mean, this is her nightmare. All of her safety nets have fallen apart. It's my feeling, and I'm curious about this because this has been, in, uh, they, the show hasn't been explicit, and so it has been a source of discussion online, but I have a, I have a pretty definitive feeling how I feel about it. I don't think Claire or Mary Abel were Duttons. I think Claire was Margaret's sister and James's yes. sister-in-law. Yeah, that's what I got too. Just from how they talk to each other. I don't think it would be permissible for Claire to speak to Margaret the way she does if she was James's sister. It seems very sisterly in how they talk about each other. And it seems very much how a sister would talk about her sister's husband the way she puts James down also. It, it seems very much that relationship to me. I think there would be, we would see more run-ins between Claire and James and less between Claire and Margaret if it was Claire and James as the siblings. Yes. I, I just thinking about my own sisters and how the they would interact with my sisters, my one sister's husband. This all felt very similar to that. <laughs> you know, just just fast forward a hundred something years. But well, I would hundred percent go to my sibling over their spouse if I had some issue with them. I'm just talking I, well for me it's straight tone. I think if Mar if Claire was Mar was James's sister, the slapping of his children the way she talks down to Margaret and belittles her, I have to feel that James would intercede at some point or that Margaret would say something along the lines of, your sister's a real bitch. You're like, like <laughs> right. you, you better tell her to check herself before she wreck herself. All of that being said, let's call them Duttons for purposes of this story. Talking about you have to throw a lot of people at the problem. We're only in episode two and we are down fully one third of the Duttons that were heading north. Why? Why add them to the story, do you think, if you're going to lose them in episode two? Is it precisely for that reason? 
Ooh, why add them to the story to begin with? Well, I think that suicide generally is a topic of conversation in this story. Claire's death provides a a moment of dialogue with Shay um, and James and gives us another moment to visit that idea of like who is hardy enough to to move on who can really like withstand how difficult this is all going to be i think they were brought in solely to be the voice of the non-dreamers the non-adventurers the non-pioneers add all that elements of doubts right at the beginning make sure we're as the audience we're seated with more than just optimism for this exciting new journey so we have that with them and then also i mean shay has this this suicide streak that's going on in his story line, it gives this opportunity to kind of talk with him about that. Shay says he admires Claire for it because it took courage to do what she did. And James, without without a beat, without missing a beat, says it wasn't courage. He's essentially calling her a coward or he doesn't say that explicitly, but it feels like the implication of his tone. He's definitely saying it's the opposite of courage. So then whatever you however you want to define that, he's like disagreeing wholly with the courageous portion. So is the courage that because Shay, I mean, think about the first time we saw Shay after he's done burning his house. He's also sitting on the banks with a gun under his chin not terribly unlike claire is here in this final scene so is the courage to to make a bold step and and know when you are checked out that when life has no meaning any longer to not continue to live in in this torrid tortured way you know, because Shay also hits on it in this episode. There's a great scene. We're going to get to it a little bit uh, about what is motivating Shay and why he wants to see, why he wants to do this drive one more time. You know, and after that, he, you know, he goes on to say that the earth can swallow him whole kind of thing. Is, is that what he means by the courage here, do you think? Or was it just that she survived all this long losing seven children and a husband, that her whole life was, uh, was an act of courage? Well, I will only speak to Claire's situation because I think that, you know, suicide is a very personal situation. And we we have listeners, I'm sure, who have their own stories and their own family stories. And so I want to be very thoughtful in the way we talk about what Claire did. For Claire, I'm going back to freedom and options and choices. What choices did she have? And did she have any viable options? It was clear at this point that her line of family was over. She wasn't going to have more children and she didn't have any children to raise. So for her, her story had come to an end and she just called it for what it was at that point. Whether people sort of want to feel like, well, you know, if that's why people were here during this time was just to get to that next generation, then she kind of was done. Now, the rest of it about whether or not it's truly courageous, I can see where Shay, for him, he obviously has regrets and concerns and things that are are picking at him the way that he does want to see the land one more time. He almost has like a bucket list kind of thing going on in his head, uh-huh. um, things that he still is unfinished business. I think that there's something to be said for anyone who has the kind of calmness that their business is finished and they are done. There, There is, I think, from the people who feel unsettled, there is some amount of admiration for that of like, wow, you you actually feel done. And that's kind of what, as humans, a lot of us kind of strive for, right, is to feel like everything I wanted to see, do, or the only purpose I had on my in the world is complete. There's nothing I can do here at this point. And they make whatever choices they make. I I don't think she had a lot of choices, you know, and she didn't want to be where she was any longer. 
I'm going to leave it up to our listeners on what they think exactly about Claire, but I do understand her argument in the situation here of why she felt the way she did. I think it's interesting that she begins this episode, too, when they're watching the Germans drink. And again, we're talking about Germans in a general sense. There are Germans, there are Russians, there are gypsies. There, this is a an Eastern European uh, amalgamation of people, but the majority seem to be Germans. And so we're going to con- kind of refer to them as as the Germans when they're drinking the water and being sick. You know, she has this line where she says, you know, the only cure for stupid is reaching the gates of hell. She may say gates of heaven. I think it's actually gates of hell is what she says. <laughs> when you when you tie that together with the nightmare and dream imagery, I, I, I really want to ask listeners about whether or not she was the about this prophecy if she if she made her own story come true kind of thing because it really if you take the whole episode in total it really feels like that to me but the last thing i wanted to say about them uh, and before we move on is there's this wonderful little moment and there's no dialogue a butterfly flies over mary abel's grave when claire is sitting next to it and she reaches for it and the butterfly flies away and she kind of watches it and i i thought it was a beautiful moment of symbolism this idea that she can't catch this pure creature you can't go back there again and and this purity and this beauty is kind of gone and out of her reach if if you're thinking about when does she make a decision to end her life i feel like it's there it felt symbolic to me that that was the moment when it hit her it feels like, you know, life is fleeting, right? Like the little right. butterfly just flying away. And and then it slips through her fingers that she was it right there, her fingers. Yeah. right next to it, and she couldn't keep it. And, and that's so painful. Now, that's the thing. Like the majority of parents that I know would have gone into protective mode with those people around, not into aggressor mode. And so that's where Claire overplays her hand in such a way that you you do understand how she leaves herself open to then having disaster happen. Yes, for sure. And, you know, Margaret a little bit guilty of that, too. I don't know how Margaret doesn't know where John is. He's a little five-year-old. I don't, I can't imagine a scenario, whether the bandits are there or not, that she doesn't know where he is, where she's left to have to scream his name and have him come running to her. The lack of oversight and protection is also kind of startling. I mean, they talk about, they talk about Elsa wandering all about I, I mean, I got to tell you, I feel like in 2021 anyway, and maybe it's the difference in, in how yeah. children are raised. I always know where Tom is. I, you know. <laughs> it, it is. I mean, it is a 2021 lens. I mean, obviously, I guess, there's a little sure. bit more, you know, freedom. We talk about it all the time. Our parents didn't know where we were in, in the in 1980s. I mean, our parents had no idea where we were during the day. There's, there's lots of stuff that I wouldn't, you know, be interested in a five-year-old doing that that he has to do. And he has yeah. to be, you know, like more self-sufficient than an average five-year-old these days. Well, let's say R.I.P. Claire. That whole storyline's all done. <laughs> you really hated Claire last week. So I'm, I'm kind of wondering, are you happy she's gone and out of the picture? Uh, well, I mean, listen, I think I think Dawn uh, Olivieri, who played Claire, did a wonderful job of establishing this character. That being said, I think this character was very unlikable. And I'm in the dreamer's camp and I, I am looking at the frontier and all of its promise. I, I am an Elsa and James fan here. So I'm not I'm not looking to hear about how we're leaving the the civilized world of Tennessee behind. 
you know who they reminded me of so much that um, going back to our little house on the prairie comparisons, Mrs. Olson and Nellie Olson, total Olson vibe. And so in that case, you know, there how many times do you remember where Charles and Caroline would be like rolling their eyes like, okay, you know, and just kind of putting up with her and dealing with her. But, you know, we all were probably pretty fine when she would like leave the scene or like, Phew, all right, on to the story. <laughs> I don't know how much money I would have to give for Caroline Ingalls to tell Nellie uh, Olson that coffee is a treat after a hard ride. Coffee is a welcome treat at any time, not just after a hard ride. Just a little addendum there, Margaret. Coffee is delicious any time of the day, no matter what the activity is. All these rules. I mean, I, I get it. I mean, you get why Claire and Mary Abel were there. I mean, they were there to voice the rules and the structure of civilized society. That's what they were there for. Which and is they the were antithesis show... of what this whole thing is about. But just to show like what we were up against, right? That that like the whole world wasn't just like running on wagon trails. You know, there was stuff that's going on everywhere. I think it was also a part of that they were now in a world that didn't welcome or appreciate that point of view anymore. Uh, it didn't help them survive like it did in civilized society. This is a world where you have to be willing to, to dream because you don't necessarily know what's going to happen. So the best you can do is dream about what may happen. It's not, it's a place with no rules. We, we learned that last week, listening to Elsa, you know, you're on the edge of civilization and here there are no rules. You no longer follow the, those constructs of civilized society. I'm going to throw out another, another thing that if you're watching Yellowstone right now, that you should have heard some things about this, about the, the concept of being able to coexist with predators. You know, it's usually represented as with the wolf over on Yellowstone and knowing when to shoot at someone and knowing when to sit back and coexist with a predator and let them walk on is an important lesson that Taylor Sheridan wants us all to learn in, in his universe. And I think this this is a case where Claire, she shot off her mouth. She threw the rocks. She didn't let that predator move on, and he probably would have. So I'm going to keep my eye on that pattern that we have that definitely plays out on Yellowstone all the time. There's a lot of coexistence in this week's Yellowstone about wolves and humans and how similar we are, which makes us kind of natural enemies. And I want to stay with this idea of choices and determination, though, because the Shea conversation the night before they go with the herd to cattle between Shea and Thomas, I think, was really interesting. Thomas and Shea continue to butt head about whether the Germans are ready or not, whether they will survive or not, whether they should call this whole thing off or not. And Shea says in this episode, episode in a definitive tone thomas you can go back but i am going let's play that clip and then talk about what he's thinking here these germans got to learn to hold their own thomas or they won't survive the trip none of us will yeah they barely survive in the river they camp five miles from town there ain't no one to hire then we don't go you stay. I'm going. I want to see it one last time. Before it's settled. Before it's ruined. After you see it. Then what? Then I don't care. World can open up and eat me. I don't give a shit. Checking off that bucket list of items to do, right? This is a guy yeah. who understands that at some point the story comes to an end. I, I, I was, I was 
impressed and also startled by how definitive his tone is about I will survive. Uh, listeners, watchers, watchers of this show, Thomas, I will survive X number of of days because I have a thing to do. And this is a, a sturdy bastard who completes the items on his list. But after that, 50-50 roulette uh, about how long how long Shea Brennan stays with this group. I was really startled by that, but impressed by how determined he seemed. How about you? Well, I think he has a purpose here. I mean, we've already described that he is this Sherpa, you know, character who is going to be moving them from point A to point B. And once they do get to point B, I don't know why Shay would continue on with our story. So in many ways, they've set it up for us. Um, You know, the storyteller has told us already this person has a purpose. And they added in that personal need of of him experiencing this entire thing one more time. And then he's going to feel fulfilled and he can be done with what he's trying to do. Now, am I hopeful that Shay like meets a lovely woman on the other end and ends up wanting to like settle down and smile and have like some sort of home and whatnot with her and rather than end his life? Yes, I would rather that. But this is the story of the cowboy. And, you know, they've told us many times the cowboy is not the husband. He's not the one who you think about as marrying type, right? So that might not be exactly what Shay's path looks like. Well, one, I hope you're right also, because in my head canon, Shea Brennan is the long descent, long, long ago descendant of Lloyd on the Yellowstone Ranch. Oh, that's funny. Because okay. I think Forey Smith and Sam Elliott may actually be related somewhere. They just remind me each other of each other <laughs> so, so much. They definitely have the same vibe. Very much the same vibe. Like <laughs> these guys are just made. These are just beef jerky with brains, like just the roughest, toughest cowboys there can be just leather skin and, and nerves of steel. So, yeah, Shay has to have a kid so that Lloyd can run one day. So uh, <laughs> one thing that occurred, that occurred to me was there's this conversation that starts the episode where James is riding through town. and He's watching all the immigrant travelers uh, eat their food and they're all living kind of feast style they're all living very well not rationing their food is it troubling that it didn't occur to Shay or thomas that they may need a cook that they may actually need to better ration these immigrants food that it seems like maybe it didn't occur to them until james says something do we have to worry about how much experience these guys actually have moving groups from texas to oregon James's reason for bringing it up is because he says, I'm concerned they're going to look at my supplies then and it's going to be a problem for me. Whereas when it comes to Shay and Thomas, they don't have any supplies that the immigrants are going to come reading. So I think that they're looking at it very differently. And I, I do think that they're obviously going to have to figure out how to use the land and find food and move along that way. So maybe James is missing that part of it a little bit with this conversation is that, well, we're going to have to handle things in different different way and i mean obviously that's how it plays out but chase says you know you're you're, you're right we're gonna add, add a cook to the list you know mm-hmm. so is it is he just placating james like that's actually not a bad idea or thomas's reaction is we're gonna live we're gonna live off the land like there are animals right. here uh you know that we we know right. and they showed yeah. the pecans and stuff like that that's what she was picking up i mean i think that Shay is making like a like a would be nice to have list <laughs> but the reality is like are they really going to get a cook and all this other stuff. I mean, don't know. I mean, he's going to try to get the the just the trail hands that they need. But I, I think it's a little bit like, gotcha, James. 
that's a that's a point you're making there, you know, and we'll put it on the dream list. But I don't know if it's going to be able to happen. And we're gonna have to make do whether it does or doesn't. In the same vein, that whole conversation about the fact that when they go to buy the cattle, you really can't get cows here because they're all being shipped to Kansas where they could be sold for $40 a head. On top of the fact that does this explain why James starts in Texas versus somewhere further north because it's maybe cheaper down here. Again, this seemed like brand new, brand new news to, to Thomas and Shay that they would have to pay these prices to get cattle and or go catch them wild and free on the Brazos. These interactions about this, like the actual logistics of this made me wonder how many times have these guys actually done this? Maybe they've actually normally do other things for Pinkerton, you know, maybe more security and less less traveling maybe they're only doing this contract of moving people so shay can see the land one more time before it's ruined maybe there's an ulterior motive here and this is actually not what they normally do i agree with you for sure that that it does seem like they're overlooking things but they've acknowledged that i mean they've said like we these people aren't really ready to go but we've got the winter to be up against you know we don't really have the supplies we need but we've got the winter up we're up against so i think that they do acknowledge this and i think that he's you know, James is making good points, but I mean, these people can't follow the three rules, Mike, the three rules they were given. I don't know, you know, how much you can really hope to create this like wagon train perfection that James is looking for. Do not drink water from the ground. One rule. It was only one of three rules. <laughs> these fools in episode two, they, they can't follow the rules. There was only three of them. This was the most obvious one. We'll make you sick. We'll kill you. Okay, so here's a question mark I have for you, Mike, on this one. Okay, so at the very beginning in that meeting, they said that Joseph was really the only one who spoke any English. Mm -hmm. That's what they seem to imply to the audience. Yes. But as we've moved on here, there's definitely other people who speak English. And within the immigrant group. And so I'm really curious as to like how much they did get from the the three rules and what they didn't understand. I mean, they would have seen Margaret and Claire over there boiling water and stuff, although they did point out that the Duttons had moved their stuff further away from where everyone else was. So maybe they didn't notice. Well, I mean, Joseph is translating in that scene. again, And this goes towards continuity and beard length and, and how fast Tim McGraw's face hair grows. <laughs> I think there has been actually some amount of time from the end of the first episode where Elsa is wandering into the river as we see the Germans just approaching the Trinity where and then where this episode takes place. Maybe not months, but I think it's been, certainly been at least a week or two since then. They've been camping here a while, prepping themselves and making sure they're kind of ready to go and, and, and checking their list and, you know, making their list and checking it twice. I think it's already a little bit of desperation. And again, it's one guy who translated for the entire group. How many, how much of those people, you know, I mean, we've all been in school, you know, there's always the kids in the back who are doodling, not listening to when the person is giving the lesson. You know, it's right. one of those things of if it's important, someone will say it more than once. That's not how it works here in 1883, though. You get it one time translated and that's it. It's a little surprising, though, that Joseph didn't, you know, yell to his own people on the banks. Now, here's the but thing. But he's not the leader, though. Remember. He isn't. He isn't. And also, Shay didn't actually explicitly say what would happen to you. True. So when they saw it happening, it's not like they necessarily made the connection. You know, he didn't say you're going to get cholera and be sick. You right. Know? He kind of makes the assumption. He says, don't drink the water. When we set, when we settle somewhere, we'll set up a latrine. And there's that whole comic bit about, you know, a shitter and toilet uh, mm -hmm. down 
river kind of thing. He doesn't actually make the connection. I think he assumes if you drink river water where people are going to the bathroom, it will make you sick, which on top of which is true. But on top of it, I think just drinking the unfiltered, oh, yes. uh, you guys gave me the little lesson about the Trinity River. There's you know, a lot of things, a lot the of brackish, creatures. The brackish water of the Trinity <laughs> yeah. is going to make mm-hmm. you sick. So I think I think there are, again, not on top logistically on top of maybe not having all the supplies. There is some basic knowledge here, which I think Shay and Thomas maybe assumed they would have some basic life survival skills. And I think they're also giving them time, right? Like part of the reason right. of camping out here is to practice, honestly. Right. Like let's spend some amount of time out here making food, making fires, figuring it out. What are we going to do here? How? To, how? What is it like to make your own little fire in your own little camp area? So I think that that was happening. Unfortunately, you know, our our main guys have to leave the camp so often. And they said, go back five miles to Fort Worth. That's a, that's a trek, you know, to go deal with. Well, Tom, but Thomas brings it up in the clip that we just played, though. They're already dying and we're not but five miles outside of town. I mean, we're talking a 2000 mile trip. They're only five miles into it and they already aren't listening to the rules and, and not doing some basic survival things. This is really a, 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 it's going to turn on a conversation about Joseph. Joseph is the one who comes kind kind of to the lady's aid when the bandits do show up. He is the man who steps up, even though he is not uh, by his own accord. He is not the leader of this mission, but as the only one who is semi-fluent in English, I think to, to your point you made earlier, I think the natural tendency here is that people are picking up words here and there, but mm. conversational English, it, it seems that Joseph is the only one with conversational English. And even that seems limited, but let, let's say he's the fluent one of the group. That's going to make him a natural leader. And the question for Joseph, and I think the journey, I like Joseph. I think Joseph is an interesting character that we haven't gotten to dive into. You guys haven't really gotten to meet too much yet. But I think Joseph is going to be a character that people are going to enjoy watching because he didn't want to be a leader. He should be the leader here as the only one who speaks the language and can interact with the guides who have been hired to get them there. But he seems very sheepish and meek at doing so. Interesting. I'm very curious to see how Joseph is kind of, you know, they say the best leaders are the ones who didn't seek the power that, you know, it's more of a thing that gets thrust upon them. I'm curious to see how Joseph answers that call when leadership naturally is going to get thrust upon him. I was surprised and pleased about Joseph actually speaking up when we went to Courtright's office and, you know, he was like, well, what about me? Do I also get a badge? Like he did tiptoe towards leadership at that moment and he was struck down. (laughs) So I was like, "Okay, okay, this is how that's going to play out. What did you think about that entire scene of going back into town and rounding up those men and killing them? If you want to dance with the girls, dance with the girls. If you want to drink at the bar, drink at the bar. But if anybody here fancies himself a gunman, you're in the wrong town. There's only one killer in Fort Worth, and that's me. There's only one killer in Fort Worth, and that's me. I think Marshall Billy Bob is doing some fantastic work here. This is, you know, I'm I'm excited to know that he is going to be a recurring character. Uh, this we're going to see him again. I'm fascinated by by this Jim Courtright character. I like this Billy Bob. I think it's cold blooded murder. I think, but I think that's just the law of the, the law of the land. In so far as there is no law here, no one is raising a ruckus. Right? This seems to be 
all kind of copacetic. You're a deputy now. Don't I have to swear something? You already did. You know, we're just going to we're, there will be no trial. This is the same town that strung up and hung a pickpocket after he was shot. The Devil's Half Acre is a tough fucking place, Caroline. And and it really seems to be Billy Bob's world. This seems that they all seem to be taking his lead of of the brand of justice around here. What was your take on him? I think he is exact kind of leader that you need in this situation. I, I don't think that there was a plan of what they were going to do when they found these guys. And, you know, he was decisive. He knew exactly what he was going to do when he found them. And he wasn't putting up with this nonsense. He already knew this group. He was so clear that he was like, I know this crew. It was done. Like he already knew they were bad news and he wasn't having any of it. Can I read you a little bit about uh, Jim Courtright? Yeah. Uh, so his real name was Timothy Isaiah Courtright. He was known as Long Hair Jim or Big Jim. He was the sheriff in Fort Worth uh, from 1876 to 1879, after which he he rode around a little while. He actually returns to Fort Worth. In 1887, he's killed in a shootout with a gambler and a gunfighter gun named Luke Short. Luke Short at the time was running the White Elephant which is kind of fascinating because the white elephant, again, we from going from back from our episode last week, white elephant is where all the action takes place in uh, this episode. They're in the white elephant and the white elephant is a real bar. It's actually a real bar still open today from their website. It's actually moved from its original location, but from their website, known in wild west lore as host of Fort Worth. Uh, as host of Fort Worth's last gunfight featuring Fort Worth Sheriff Longhair Jim Courtright against the White Elephant owner Luke Short. The White Elephant Saloon is to this day still haunted by the memory and presence of Longhair Jim, one of Fort Worth's most corrupt lawmen. Uh, you know, as Marshal, he was in charge of keeping the peace in the notorious Hell's Half Acre. At the time, Fort Worth was a very dangerous place with altercations between unruly drunks and lawmen being commonplace. Few people dared to cross Jim and he, and he killed the several who did. In on August 25th, 1877, Deputy Marshal Columbus Fitzgerald was shot and killed while attempting to break up a street fight. Courtright shot and killed the suspect that same night. During his tenure as Fort Worth Marshal, it's reported that he killed at least four other men during altercations and shootouts. The suspected reason why he came to the White Elephant and got into the gunfight with Luke Short is that Luke Short the owner of the white elephant refused to pay him protection money because that was how Jim Courtright actually made most of his money. It wasn't from being a marshal. It was from racketeering. It was from, you know, mafia style providing uh, mafia style protection for the businesses of Fort Worth. And so Luke Short got on his bad side by not, uh, by not willing, being willing to pay. And that led to the gunfight, which ended Marshal Billy Bob's life. <laughs> I mean, I think he did an amazing job portraying that exact character. I feel like you felt all that vibe. Like he was definitely a guy who did not follow the rules, uh, you know, <laughs> just first and the... ask no questions later. Yeah. Yeah. There was nothing. We don't I don't care what they what the answers are, to be honest. I loved it when the guy was like, I, you know, I'm unarmed. He's like, I can see that. And it's just like, anyway, <laughs> like, yeah. moving on. Yeah. Yeah, right. They're not a sympathetic man. And uh, yeah, not terribly worried about the details. Just uh, looking at big picture kind of thing here. Uh, but this wasn't the only cameo of a big movie celebrity we got in this episode. How excited were you in the opening scene to see old bearded Tom Hanks show up as uh, the Northern's General George Meade, pulling a very disheveled, bearded Captain James Dutton uh, out of the Dunker Church graveyard? 
I think that it was such a specific moment there that had to happen. And from what I understand in real life, uh, Tim McGraw and Faith Hill are very good friends with Tom Hanks and Rita Wilson. So he actually asked him if he would participate in, in this scene. I think that there's a tenderness about Tom Hanks where you can understand like he is the opposing officer here, but yet he can show compassion and he can mm-hmm. understand the the level of loss here. I think you can buy it from Tom Hanks in the way that you couldn't buy it from a lot of other people. He does so much with just repeating the line, I know, twice and putting his hand on his shoulder. It really says everything. And I, and I think Tim McGraw is acting his butt off here. The silent bewilderment and crying as this as this enemy, they're enemies, but they also have the same existence, right? That's something that I think men in war often people don't necessarily understand. And I think the Civil War and the Battle of Antietam was the bloodiest war up to that point in American history and remains one of the bloodiest the single days of fighting in our country's history. We talked last week, uh, if you remember, at the start of the the premiere, James is riding his wagon and shooting off the bandits who are attempting to rob him. And afterwards, they're all dead. He takes care of his business. Afterwards, he vomits everywhere. And I said to I said out loud, I wonder if that's some kind of PTSD after action like reaction and knowing what he went through. So he ends up getting captured here after the Battle of Antietam. It seems like he is the only one of his uh of of the confederate army to survive right he's literally among a whole field of dead men you could see where that ptsd comes from he goes on to spend the next three years the remainder of the war he spends in prison i i think the show has been really smart about developing this character he is a warrior who will kill when he needs to kill you know he fires he fires his gun into white elephant he doesn't flinch he doesn't blink but then he was gonna go vomit you know, he doesn't mm-hmm. like taking life. It has, it has scarred him to his soul. I think that one of the very unique things about the American Civil War is obviously these these men were fellow countrymen. We weren't battling another outside force for our land here. And that that's a very unique situation. And I do think that there's a great deal of compassion and understanding, especially amongst officers. I think that there's something there that, you know, we, we don't see in the big, huge war movies. But I, I believe it happened on the battlefield. And I believe that that could have happened exactly as it did. 97 pounds, James Dutton comes coming home, him not wanting to talk about the war. Mm-hmm. Shunning men on the street when they call out captain, he crosses yeah. the other way. Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, that's that's a very different take on being a veteran from Shay and most especially from Thomas, who's still wearing his jacket. This is, this is a very different take on how he feels leaving, you know, that situation. And so I'm interested to see how they even flesh out these three different men with very different experiences and how they do come away from the war. 87,000... Union soldiers, 38,000 Confederate soldiers were in that battle, just that single day battle, 125,000 men, 22,000 killed, wounded or captured or went missing as a result of that battle. That is a tremendous loss of life all to happen in a single day and to live through that. The fact that he lived through that, I think a psychologist would probably say to you, there's a bit of him that actually died that day. I mean, when you come back 97 pounds, I think there's a little bit of your soul that is part of that weight that never left the Dunker Church. I think that's why you can understand his stiff upper lip, even with Claire, then, you know, you can understand where, where, you know, he is no stranger to death and he is no right. stranger to being up close to death. And, and probably that wasn't the first hole he dug. So nope. there's just a lot there that, that is really, 
Um, you know, it's such a small scene and it's so quick with Tom Hanks, but I think that it really informs the rest of this episode and most certainly is going to inform the rest of this whole series. And I would like just to draw out there for people listening, the parallels, the book and parallels of this episode begins with confederate james dunton being pulled from this this battlefield and being comforted by a union soldier a union general at that and this episode ends with him a shovel in hand and being assisted by another union officer come to help him in compassion and fellowship there, there's an interesting parallel there and the north of the south at some point we were all americans and we were all fighting the same battle this man versus man man versus himself man versus nature kind of thing whether you were gray or whether you were blue it doesn't matter at a certain point we are all men and we are all humans you know first above all that's a really nice book and that just kind of hit me while i was listening to you talk the, the way the episode begins and the way the episode ends these kind yeah. of these men side by side and, and i and i appreciate that again you know one of taylor sheridan's big drives in his writing seems to be acknowledging and putting a spotlight on the different um aspects of life that are being lived currently and in the past that that don't get acknowledged very much and i think talking about civil war veterans and the various ways that that ended up looking or you know in the case of, of course for yellowstone ranchers and cowboys or native americans all the different ways that he kind of shifts the light over onto a certain group and says like, look, this was, this is what they had to deal with or what they're currently dealing with. And let's all just have like a moment here, you know? And, and the larger point that, that while there's so much that divides us, what in 1883 in 1862 and in 2021, there's still so much more that should unite us. And whether that is the North versus the, the South, whether that is James and protecting his family versus Shay and Thomas, you know, and the Germans, or, you know, in modern day, whether it's the Duttons, John Dutton and Thomas Rainwater, two men who are enemies, but also share so much common similarities. I think, I think that's definitely part of Taylor's overarching themes that at work for him is these are stories you're not hearing and also something that is a source of things that unite us as well as, you know, as well as divide us. And we forget about that family and loss and grief. So uh, let's stay with the war a little bit because uh, this episode actually gives us a, a specific date and time in place. It, it tells us that it's taking place on April 9th of 1883, which happens to be Elsa's 17th birthday, which makes her born at April 9th, uh, 1866. And it is the 18th anniversary of the surrender of the South to the North. Uh, the I always learned it was the Appomattox Courthouse. In this episode, she says it was the house of Wilbur McLean, I believe she calls him. Wilmer McLean. Uh, again, really interesting that we're getting all this Civil War information. The fact that we flash back to the Battle of Antietam, but then that the episode is then taking place on the 18th anniversary of the surrender. And the idea that James came home and pretty quickly impregnated his wife uh, had Elsa 12 months to the day from the end of the war. That's all very significant. And and in line with World War II, right? The servicemen came home, the GAs came home from World War II, and we had the baby boom for the next five years. What, what did you think of learning this very specific information? This is not a show that gives a lot of specific dates. Why do you think it was important to, uh, to, to learn this about Elsa here? 
Well, we have had this concept of, you know, becoming a woman, becoming old enough to court, becoming old enough to be a part of this adult world. And I definitely think that she takes big steps in this episode to be viewed as something other than a child. We have James trusting his daughter and respecting her enough to ask her to come and be a part of of collecting all the, the longhorns and the cattle and, and, and worrying about her being able to protect herself at an adult level, you know, giving that gun, which my big eye is just like staring at so hard. Chekhov's gun? Yeah, I mean, obviously that gun is the gun that we've seen in episode one at the beginning. So I'm nervous about all of that. But, I, you know, I think that these are all the little checking off moments of like Elsa's growing up. She is now making her move into the adult world. She's going to be given adult responsibilities. You know, they're kind of confirming her age for us in my mind. I I do want to play the clip, the birthday clip, though, because, again, this is something this episode came out. We're actually recording this because Paramount... uh, uh, plus drop this with episode one. People watched it before we actually ended up recording the episode about it. Uh, people are saying that the show actually takes place in 1900 because she's saying it was 18 years ago or 1901 because she, no, no, she's very clear. It is 1883 is when this is taking place. She's talking she was born 17 years ago in 1866 and the war ended 18 years ago in 1865. I want to play the clip. I don't find it confusing, but man, it's been a source of internet talking. Controversy. <laughs> I mean, know what today is? <laughs> oh, no. Thursday, maybe. Eighteen years ago, on this day, Lee surrendered to Grant in the home of Wilma McLean in the village of Appomattox. A year later, I was born. It was Monday, April 9th, 1883. And it was my birthday. Yeah. Thursday. I like that she doesn't argue the point with her father. She knows it's her birthday, but how many kids do you know would be like, Dad, it's my birthday! But that's, see, and I think that that's like our big signal to maturity is that she didn't do it. She just said, yeah, I think it is Thursday. Like, that was it. Like, she doesn't need to draw attention anymore. She knows that she, she's an adult. I like what it signals that James is trusting her, acknowledging her skills as a writer. I mean, there are hundreds of people here in this group, and he singles her out as being one of the only competent writers who, who, you know, he's putting her on the same level as himself, as, you know, uh, Thomas and Shay, union, uh, union vets who rode horses probably during the war and ever since every day, you know, for a living. And real honest to God cowboys who are cowboys as a profession. He's signaling to them, respect this woman. She's got skills. And you know what? She handles herself so well. And I think she earns a lot of respect. I think that's what gets her really on Wade's radar. I I think it has to, it's more than just that she's a pretty face under her, her ridiculously floppy hat. It's that she can handle herself in the saddle is what draws the eyes of Wade and Wade's friend, whose name I'm still not sure on, but Wade is the important one. 
<laughs> you know, and I, so I I love that. I love that journey for her, not to cl- uh, quote Shit's Creek, but I, I was so happy that she got to have that experience and that so far she is getting to live this dream along with her father. You mentioned freedom and independence as a show theme, the difference between them and, and what is freedom. I want to play this clip from this episode, which is what I think triggered that question for both of us. And then uh, let's talk about it a little bit as we run short on time here. Freedom. To most, it is an idea. An abstract thought that pertains to control. That's not freedom. That's independence. Freedom is riding wild over untamed land with no notion any moment exists beyond the one you are living. What do you think about that definition of freedom versus independence? I struggle with it because it's something that I thought a lot about when she said it. I very much value freedom. I think as Americans, we are given one idea of freedom that is actually probably independence versus freedom. But because I am saying that freedom really has a lot more to do with your options and opportunities and what you have in front of you. But I think that it gets tempered a lot by relationships and, and having any type of ties to other people. Because if you have a family... This idea of Elsa being like, where you could just ride and and you just can't even know, you know, what day is it? What's happening? You can't be like that and have like kids. <laughs> You know, right, like you don't right. get that. So, so I kind of think as like a parent myself and, you know, as a person member of like a, of a larger extended family, I think that I will never know what true freedom is because I will never have those, those options. No matter, even if they were given to me, my heart and my relationships wouldn't allow myself to just like abandon responsibilities or anything. So I don't know that I as a person will ever experience freedom, but I can experience independence in, in terms of making choices, having opportunities having an uh, having the ability to decide where my path goes within confines because i choose to be a part of family or i choose to be part of larger society that kind of thing i want to play it one more time i need to listen to it one more time okay (laughs) freedom to most it is an idea an abstract thought that pertains to control that's not freedom that's independence. Freedom is riding wild over untamed land with no notion any moment exists beyond the one you are living. So I think what she's saying, and I don't know if I agree with you yet, but I think what she is saying in her specific case Freedom is this ability that she's been given to go herd cattle and ride about and not and and just the world is just open to her here and that that freedom she's experiencing now is tempered because she has been given the independence to do it. But uh, tomorrow, she won't necessarily have the independence to do it because independence is a function of control. And Elsa, even at 17 years old today, is not independent. She is under the direct control and is only allowed to do things because her mother and or father permit her to do it. They grant her the independence to do this thing, which is enabling her to experience this freedom. 
So I think they go hand in hand the way she's describing it, that she has freedom today and the independence to exercise it. Tomorrow, the freedom would still be there. She just won't have the independence to go do it necessarily. Well, and the reality is as a woman in this time frame and exactly where they are, she is unlikely, regardless of her parents' permission, she doesn't actually have the independence to be able to make a life like she is she's reliant on the rest of that group for protection for food for safety all the things right mm-hmm. so there's i mean there's an interdependence here that go, that comes into play that we all experience on different levels so i mean i think this is a really great idea and again something i think we should put a pin in it and continue to follow it as this theme you know reveals itself because i think it's going to come up a bunch more times because we have elsa being of this age where she is going to be struggling with, you know, I can do it (laughs) of the toddler days, you know, and so I think we're going to revisit this a whole bunch about what it means. And then do you really have freedom if you have responsibilities, if you have, you know, even she wants to make her father proud? Well, then in that case, does she really have the freedom to do anything she wants? Not really, because at the end of the day, she's going to constrain herself because of her desire to please her dad. So, you know, there's a lot of other elements here. I think for me, I think I'm boiling it down to freedom is the choices that are available to you and your independence is whether you can actually, actually exercise them. That there may be doors one, two, and three. That's freedom. But your the question of independence is whether you could actually walk through doors one, two, or three, or if only one is available to you or if none are available to you. Yeah, it's very tricky. She has the freedom to flirt with Wade, but does she have the independence to do more than that? I think that's the rubber in the road with this conversation, this idea. So far, the way she's explaining it, the way I'm understanding it, that's how I'm making them work. It's choices versus ability to act upon them is 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 and, and if there's them. viable and and I was going with choice and viable options, so mm. you can choose something, but that but running off with some guy right now is that a viable choice for Elsa? You know, will that work out for her? And so that's that's where you get into like you can make a choice, but is it a viable option for you that's actually going to turn out well? That that's that gets into consequences of your choices and all that good stuff. So I mean, I I really think this is going to continuously play out. We certainly see this over in Yellowstone. I think Beth my goodness sometimes she is just the walking contradiction of having independence but also this freedom but also so badly wanting to please all these other people and then how that all kind of messes with her because she wants to do whatever she wants but at the end of the day she wants to belong and wants to be a part of this family so you know that constrains her you know she has to do what john wants her to do beth dutton is elsa dutton in the darkest timeline in so many ways (laughs) well it's after life hits her this or you can look at it like elsa is beth before the whole world crashes on her right well especially after tonight's episode (laughs) we're all woof (laughs) yeah it's a tough one if you haven't watched it yet go watch i i am a born and bred new yorker uh, for those that don't know, I grew up in New York City and, you know, raised in Queens. I live in the country now, but the concrete under my toes is probably what's most natural to me. I got to tell you, I really agreed with her and was struck by the beauty 
you know, Texas gets a lot of love in this episode. The the Texas skyline and the Texas beauty really is a is a, another character in this episode in particular. And she talks about at the beginning how Texas is magic. I don't know what Texas means, but to me, it's magic. And then at the end of the cattle drive, the sun is setting and is just about the prettiest damn picture I've ever seen. And she says that mm-hmm. it's magnificent, um, you know, as if someone decided to paint the day. And man. Oof. I mean, I know you're spoiled because you've gotten to live in Texas almost your whole life. I mean, it, to me, it's it's like the Catskills at a sunset, you know, up here in the mountains. It has its own really majestic beauty if you catch it at the right time of the day. But there is something really, really impressive about Texas at that golden hour that they're shooting at in this show that I, I quite very much love. So. Everything's bigger in Texas, Mike. So, yeah, those sunsets, Including they have a, the a look unto itself. And I, I would definitely say that politics aside, when you just look at the citizens of Texas, even even today, for the vast majority of us, there's a real like live and let live spirit here that, you know, I we homeschool and there's there's no rules about that in Texas. We can do however we want. Again, that's sort of freedom versus independence versus, you know, what are the constraints, what what have you. I, I'm really happy that the show is showing love to Texas because I think that, you know, like uh, sunsets don't make headlines in New York City um, having to do with Texas. A lot of the, the politics of it all can make the big headlines and kind of color what the rest of the country or the rest of the world thinks about us. But mm-hmm. as individual people, as, as an entire state, I would tell you very lovely, very warm and welcoming people who very much would just rather everyone do their own thing and just mind your biz and we'll all mind ours. And, and I think that that, celebration of freedom and independence is huge here and and it's something that i very much value in living here before we head into our interviews with faith hill and isabel may since we've been talking about elsa i think we need to leave on two placeholders two pins in the board uh for us to to bookmark and we will surely come back to both of them i think one is very sweet and i think one is ominous and maybe foretells danger and death and destruction uh along the lines of what we see in the opening scene of the first episode let's play the sweet one first this is uh what a cowboy means to a woman looking for a husband I painted a picture of my husband in my mind. He don't look like you. Well, I'm a cowboy, ma'am. We don't look like nobody's husband. And we're the ones that think about when your husband ain't around. You and I have been talking about that quote for weeks. This is this true in your experience? I mean, you've been watching Yellowstone since day one. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, a lot, a lot of women thinking about the rips of the world, maybe <laughs> when when their husband is at work. True. Uh, very, very little of my uh, cowboy knowledge actually comes from Yellowstone. It might shock you. My cowboy knowledge comes from from living here, and I mean, yeah, there there is a Han Solo, you know, real uh, scoundrel kind of side to cowboys that you know they're not going to follow the rules. They're not going to do what you want them to do. And so does that make them a great partner in a relationship? I must say no. (laughs) But does that make it exciting? Does it make you, you know, want to have that, you know, crazy one night stand with them or something? Sure. I mean, they seem like they're going to be crazy, but you really don't want to rely on them in that day in, day out kind of way. The interesting thing is, though, I would not call cowboys 
unreliable. I would not say they're not men that that if something was going on that you couldn't run to and and hope that they would protect in some way, right? I still feel that way about them. But it's the day in day out, like they need their freedom, like uh, the no fences. It's not that they it's not that they're trying to hurt feelings. They're not trying to do anything wrong, but they do not want to be fenced in. I don't know much about cowboys beyond what I've no. seen in TV and movies, but <laughs> I, I will say Wade strikes me as the kind of cowboy that if he actually touched a boob may die oh he does have a little bit more oh shucks there's kind of guy there, to there's, him. there's some dew on his flower i don't think has yeah. been shook off just yet but yes. i think that makes him and elsa though very cute you know they're mm-hmm. they, he he's definitely having to play this cowboy role though i feel like even that clip aside strikes me as someone who is probably a lot more talk at this point than experience and Elsa, we know for sure, I, she's not even talk yet, She and she has no experience. It's going to be interesting to see what develops of these two. I like both of them. I very much hope that Wade doesn't turn out to be some kind of scumbag. Uh, all points to him being a good guy, just trying to stay alive in this world as a young as a youngish cowboy. So I hope he is the man that Elsa, you know, maybe deserves, and and not not too Han Soloy, not too scoundrelly, <laughs> not too nerfery. You know, doesn't call the empire on you before he invites you to dinner, kind of thing. Uh, so, but you know, it's going to be interesting to watch. I mean, I think this episode definitely sets up this uh, this interesting love dynamic and the fact that you know the cowboys stay right. They're not leaving this party. They're going to head north at least for a little while with them. They sign on to, with with Shay. Their reasoning, I, I you know, I know what they say, and I want to ask you if you think that that's the real reason or what they say. You know, well, now there's some widows amongst them, and that kind of <laughs> locker room elbowing. Do you think it's a hundred percent that, or do you think that they actually see like these people need us, and also? There are some people here that, like, you know, uh, are of interest. Like, where do you think that that their motivation actually is? Oh, I think it's I think it's a combination. I think it's we earn a keep. This is what they do. They cowboy. So one job is as as good as another. Right? They're gonna they're gonna earn their money. However, cowboys earn their money uh, by signing onto this wagon trail. There is a world of opportunity here. Lots of women maybe needing their wagon wheels fixed, you know, and greased, <laughs> as it were. Um, so, yeah, these are these are young bucks. You know, Wade certainly, you know, has his eye on on a prize. And I think everyone they're going to come across is going to have some kind of old, uh, some level of ulterior motive. But whether it's here or whether it's at the White Elephant, these guys are going to be cowboying. And cowboying is riding horses, flirting with women shooting bad men herding cows and and chasing down longhorns and just living that life so whether they're doing a 2000 mile trek to oregon or they're stamping around fort worth i think they're going to be doing the same thing in and out you know day in and day out so why not why not here versus somewhere else i guess feel like a true cowboy chooses the adventure so it makes me makes me look forward to these guys and i do think that wade has a good amount of naivete and kind of just sweetness to him that uh that gives me hope that he could be a good man but also like a sense of humor and some street cred Mm -hmm. right i mean he has a good relationship with those i thought that those when they ride up and that the camp that they were going to be riding into to herd the cattle you know they're like you know wait you could have gotten shot you know just ride in here like that he handles it real smooth like he diffuses it with humor like i really i was impressed with the sly experience with which he diffuses that entire 
entire situation. You know, you can smell it through the television, the testosterone in that little circle right there. And he diffuses the whole thing and he's got relationships. He knows people, at least at least at this part of the of the trip. He knows people and he knows the land and he knows where things are. Seems to be an asset to me. Yeah. So, so far I'm liking what I see for Wade. I just hope it continues. But now we have to, you know, before we say goodbye, we have to get into the warning that Elsa leaves us with. Let's take a listen. What began as a journey had become a retreat into the unknown. We were backing into the abyss. So worried our sins would follow us. We didn't bother watching where we walked. And behind us was a cliff. I mean, it doesn't get more ominous ominous than that, does it, Caroline? I don't think it does. And I also think that it begs the question that people were asking in episode one. What made them leave Tennessee? What, you know, what other cliffs are behind them uh, besides just Fort Worth and the, and the, the bloody mess they just left? Um, you know, what other cliffs are, were behind them and, and, you know, bridges burned where like they, they aren't going to get any help back there. So I'm kind of curious if those stories are going to come out. Well, guys, that ends it for our discussion of episode two of 1883, Behind Us, comma, A Cliff. Stick around now for our interview with Faith Hill and Isabel May, who play Margaret Dutton and Elsa Dutton. And then uh, we'll come back and wrap up the show. Here now, our roundtable press interview. All right. Let's start with Sterling from Taste of Country. Hello. How are you today? Hi, hey, Sterling. Hi, Sterling. How are you? I know I wanted Doing. to say his name, too. I know. Okay. Sterling is a, a great name. name. Oh, well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. The, your, uh, some of the very earliest scenes in this, the mother-daughter relationship that you establish is, is one that's very bonded, but it's also very uh, independent of one another or trying to gain more independence. Did you know each other before this show? And if not, then how do you establish that bond that quickly? Um, we did not know one another before the show. We met um, just before we began filming uh, Cowboy Camp. Uh, it, it honestly, uh, pretty natural. It was a natural, um, yeah, pairing. On it, just I don't know. Uh, I, I think this the the writing, the way the the script is written between uh, for Margaret and for Elsa. The characters that we play, um, I think the fact that I am a mom of three and Isabel does have traits of, you know, each of our daughters. Um, but yeah, it, it was a that one way to describe it. But I think the writing in the script uh, set the tone of, of, of what the relationship was going to be. But immediately we just hit it off. The fact that we have dimples and yeah, and wanting her to embrace her beautiful dimples. <laughs> <laughs> Isabel, do you have anything to add to that? Oh, I mean, I think she said everything I would say, but she's she's an easy person to fall in love with. Um, and I don't know, her warmth and, and compassion, um, she immediately just made me feel welcomed. And I felt like I could be vulnerable with her and honest and um and then all it, the, the hard part really was 
pretending to be mad at her, upset with her. I mean, <laughs> that was hard for me. Yeah, too. I was like, I, I, I'm like, no, but I, I, I wanted to be mama, mama. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Next, we have El with comic book resources. Hi, folks. Thanks for ch- chatting with us today. Oh, hi. Thank you. Hi. So you both play these incredibly strong women characters. So I'm hoping you can talk about your processes for getting into character, both like emotionally, but also maybe I know that period costumes, especially for women at that time, can be incredibly involved. So physically, how the process is for getting into your characters. Mm. Physically, um, for me, I, I, I knew what the, uh, we were all told that it was going to be a, a, um, physically demanding uh, role for everyone, the pro- just because it needed to be as authentic as possible. Um, but then the costuming, whew, that's another level. Mm-hmm. Uh, the corsets, the layering of clothing. And um, yeah, it, it uh, had a, I've had a few misplaced ribs along the way. They, they're back in place. Everything's fine. But I don't know how they did it back then. Honestly, there's, I have a whole new respect for that part of it. Um, mentally, uh, wow, that, that's, uh, that's a much longer conversation. You, you want to add to that? I mean, um, yeah, I think it, I, what's interesting about this project in particular is you're living their experiences as, as literally as you as we as actors possibly can Naturally. because the terrain and the environment is incredibly realistic and you are as cold as they would be and you are as hot as they would be um to a degree of course you get to go and home and and peel off the layers but um yeah I think that just kind of allows you to step into their shoes um in a really honest way mm-hmm. that otherwise you know being on a sound stage um it just would not be the same. Would not be. The it same would not be the same. Yeah. Next is Nick with Cinema Blend. Hello, hello! Congratulations Hi. on nailing everything. Thank you both so much. Thank, Thank you. you. This is kind of a silly question, but during Elsa's attack scene in the in the hotel, there's a moment where the guy says she's a wild one in the middle of their fight. And uh, I, I wondered if that was uh, maybe a nod to you, Faith. <laughs> oh, I did. Wow. I haven't even realized that. I mean, yeah, you do say that. No, he says he that. He says that, yeah. I didn't even think about that. I, that's a Taylor Sheridan question. I doubt it, but I don't know. Wait, what's I, a reference? Uh, <laughs> I love you so much. I'm sorry. <laughs> I do. I do. That was that was my first record I ever. Had. Oh my god! Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, oh my god! This is so cool. No, don't I'm be sorry. sorry. I, this is why this is so amazing. Honest to. Oh my god! I love you. I I'm love sorry. that you didn't know that. No, seriously, <laughs> honey, it's been so. It, I don't think you weren't even born. <laughs> How long has it been? Like 30 years ago. Good God Almighty. Um, yes. So probably some of those things you have on your shelf. About that the whole. <laughs> this is awesome Uh, um (laughs) no don't no you shouldn't know these things you should be doing what you're doing that's why you're here that's why you are 
Elsa, my God, I, nobody could play that if you paid attention mm, to that shit. I don't think, I don't think, to, uh, sorry, sorry. I don't think, to, I don't think it was a reference. I don't, I don't, I don't think, think so. I don't think it was. I remember yeah. Taylor, when we were shooting that scene, it was kind of just on a whim. He just kind of threw it at the guy. So, oh, geez. Oh my God. I'm going to be fired and kicked off of every interview ever. Next, we have Michael with Pop Culture Review. Hi, ladies. Thank you for joining us today. How are you? We're great. How are you? you. Uh, Good. Uh, Faith, first we have to say, Tim wanted us to tell you how much he loved you and loved working with you. It was the last thing he said when we talked to him. He said, make sure you tell Faith when she comes. When did you talk to him tonight? Uh, About about 30 minutes ago. He was like the first one who came through our room. That's so nice. Yes. Well, okay. I love him too. Thank you. It's nice working with him too. Isabel, tell us about your experience of of writing, but in particular, I, I love the cattle herding scene from episode two, and you really look like you were into it. Did you know how to ride before? Was that all picked up at, at cowboy camp? Tell us about uh, shooting that scene. Yeah, I, um, no, I, I had not ridden before. Um, and the minute I found out I was going to do the project, I had kind of the summer to uh, find someone to ride with me as, as much as I possibly could. <laughs> um, and then cowboy camp certainly was in, intensive um, and that helped a great deal, but it was really just observing as best I could how the Wranglers rode and their, their posture. And I mean, they're the real deal. Um, and then we got to herd cat. I mean, I'd never heard cows before. I don't Especially know. Especially Longhorn. That's a, that, I mean, they're big. They're very, yeah. But now, now it's like the most comfortable. I yeah. can casually do it with a cup of coffee in my hand. I mean, I know, it's, now I'm so used to it. I've done, we've been doing She's it. She's like, yo, move. Yeah, we do the, <laughs> and we, there's this there's this howling sound that they they do to lead cows away, and so now I'm trying to get rid of that. Yeah, I'm not gonna do it here because I'd blow your windpipes out, or no, your windpipes, um, <laughs> ear, but what, whatever they're called, uh, yes, ear things, ear drums. Yeah, ear, you thank you. You're not. Yeah, gonna, that's the word. You're not gonna be on my team if you play trivia. Again. I know, okay. no, definitely not. <laughs> um, but yes, yes, I hope that answers the question. Oh, for sure, Faith. Faith, did you know how to ride? I mean, t- I. I assume you you did but i don't know you just had this cowgirl vibe about you but did you know how to ride or was this all oh new skills God, for you yeah so much i i did i do know how to ride i did know how to ride i rode improperly i found out uh quickly on the first day of cowboy camp um i <laughs> um after our third child, I, we had horses and, and I had a horse named Bandit and I had a really, really scary experience with him. Um, took off, first of all, we should know this, most people who ride know this, but never run your horse when, you know, when they see the barn, don't ever let them run. Well, I didn't know that. And I just let my, my horse Bandit just like for almost half a mile fly to the barn and um, it was terrifying. And it was after I, I'd had Audrey, our third daughter. And at that, after that moment, I said, you know what? I'm going to stay off of horses for a while. Because yeah. it, it terrified me that much. Because I, I, I was a casual rider, but not as well as I should have been to be going that fast. Mm-hmm. After cowboy camp, I learned a lot about how to ride a house. A house. <laughs> 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 not a house a horse no. properly yeah, yeah. Um, but 
I spend a lot of time on the wagon, which I love. I love leading. I, that That is actually really hard. And for some reason, I that's kind of good at it. You're I can't believe it. it. But I love writing. I do. And I've watched this one, I, this one, um, Isabel um, beginning and how she writes now. It's just like, wow, it's so freeing. It's like one of the best things. It's so therapeutic oh, yeah. writing. Next, we have Caroline from Pop Culture Review. Hi, guys. For Isabel, it's rare to have a story about cowboys and pioneers that focuses on the point of view of a teenage girl coming of age. What did you think when you read the script and realized you'd have such a distinct voice in telling this story? Um, Well, I was incredibly moved. Um, I couldn't believe that I had the opportunity and have the opportunity to play this character and speak, um, you know, be the voice to a degree of the show and kind of express um, everyone's experience collectively because that's what she's doing. And mm-hmm. and I always love the contrast of her point of view, her perspective in the voiceover, which is almost like poetry. It's like mm-hmm. reading a novel mm-hmm. almost. And then, and how pure and honest and, um, alive and optimistic her point of view is at that at least at the beginning and then contrasting with the kind of brutality and dangers of this this world um yeah it's it i yes i can't yeah read before i certainly and Mm -hmm. i and i just i can't believe that i get to do it so Well, as a Texan, I want to say thank you so much for falling in love with Texas throughout all of your poetic words. You're clearly, you're clearly falling for it. And I love that. Yeah. Thanks, you guys. Thank you. Great voice, by the way. Yeah. And then if we can get last question from Sterling. All right. Um, This is for both of you equally. Both of you have been involved in some big productions nothing on this scale in terms of film or tv this is bigger in terms of cast in terms of the filming scale in terms of the expectations what's the most intimidating part coming into it and what's the most rewarding part coming out of it we're still in it um sterling we we actually when we leave here this afternoon we go back to texas and we film first thing in the morning um some pretty pretty major scenes coming up this week. Um, um, The most intimidating thing going into it was having read something um, as remarkable. And and, and we keep saying this, but it honestly is the truth. Um, as, As a woman, as a mom, having read something, first of all, so strong and powerful for a character you know, for young female, um, I just, I was knocked out by the fact that, that first of all, it could be written and I'd never, ever read it written in that way. Never read anything like it close to it. The entire script in a sense is, um, was just remarkable. So going into it, the responsibility of bringing my character I think all of us would feel this way, our characters to life, bringing, giving them the justice that they need, like making them, uh, creating, creating them in the way that they were written and then some. 
uh, that was uh, the biggest fear and uh, and challenge. The reward coming out of it because we're still in it. Well, since we were starting to see pieces of it put together, the reward is being able to experience that with the cast that we have all fallen in love with. We are all such a big family now, and there's so many great performances in this mm. show not a bad one across I mean, the board across the board and and then just to the hard work of uh, just every everyone that you won't see you know sitting in front of a camera doing an interview that's responsible for creating this environment for us um that is has been the most rewarding is to is to know that my god we've done the hardest thing we've ever done all of us but then to see it is like wow okay Maybe it's uh, it's working. <laughs> it was beautiful to watch yeah. it last night. Yeah, it, I, that's the truth. That's I, I just took it the whole time. You want to say something quickly? No, you said everything I wanted to say. I did. Thank you. <laughs> there you have it. <laughs> thank you very much. I appreciate thank it. Thank you. Thank you. Sorry, I'm gonna take so much time. All right. Thank you so much, ladies. Just want to give a big thank you again to IDPR, who is the one uh, with the the firm handling all of the press for Yellowstone in 1883 and for the four sixes coming up soon. Uh, thank you for coordinating those interviews and letting us be a part of them. Thank you to Faith Hill and to Isabel May for your time in sitting down and talking with us. I thought they were extremely entertaining and it was lovely to watch them interact with each other as much as with us and the other press members that were there. They do have a very mother daughter vibe about them that I I found very infectious and endearing. So, <laughs> yeah, their report is amazing. And I, I hope we're going to see it for a long time. I mean, I'm, I'm nervous still about episodes one colds open there with the, uh, with everything that's going to happen with Isabel. I, I, you know, I looked at that more carefully. Um, that arrow goes all the way through her. It's not just like poked in her belly. It goes all the way out her back by like two feet makes me very scared. So I'm hopeful that we, we still get a lot of Margaret and Elsa for, for seasons to come, but I don't know. I mean, the show is definitely baiting us with the two flashbacks on Yellowstone that have taken place in 1893, neither of which have featured Elsa in them. Uh, you know, all of that goes together. It makes me feel like that it's all red herring. I think that cold open together with the fact that we're, they're explicitly not showing us them in the 1893 flashbacks in Yellowstone feels all very red herring to me. Just say, just the same as I don't think that James really dies in that hut in the episode eight flashback in Yellowstone. Mm. I don't know. Maybe he does, but it all feels very red herring to me. Well, so I have a, I have a couple comments that, so one, I, I feel like, you know, with things like our imagery of like the butterfly, the more beautiful and, carefree and just sweet that they make Elsa the more hopeful we feel with her the more that I worry about her slipping through our fingers in the season one and feeling that loss of her so deeply which would be a wonderful way for Taylor Sheridan to make us care about this group and make us feel like you know now you're you're really getting invested into each individual character and it would be cruel to take our Elsa from us but also they're doing it like really really 
cleverly to continue to make us love her, you know? Yeah, it's, it's going to be interesting. I mean, there, there definitely is a telltale there, though. I mean, you can't forget there is uh, there are the beads in her hair if you watch that cold yes. open uh, on top of the snowy mountains in the back, which I predicted maybe were the Rockies, but maybe they're further north. Maybe they are, you know, near, you know, Wyoming and Montana. At some point, they're going to come across Native Americans is my guess. At some point, she is going to get her hair braided a bit. And I think we have to keep a watch out for when that happens. I don't think they would have put that in the show and made it so visible right. if that doesn't become a thing. So that definitely is a for – for those looking for clues, I think those are the clues you have to be looking for. Well, and it, it definitely leans into that relationship that the Duttons may or may not have with the Native Americans that they run across in terms of, you know, now going back to this is all supposed to shed light, you know, on the rapport between Rainwater and John Dutton over in Yellowstone. Like there's like a give and take at times. They work together at times and they don't at times. And I think that there's a lot of that. That's something I also just want to throw out a real wild hair kind of feeling that if James does pass in that episode that they showed the little clip in Yellowstone, then I'm super curious in our 2021 women don't get the credit that they deserve if it will actually be Margaret Dutton that builds that much larger home with her boys, um, maybe even their sons, you know, so it'd be like her children and her grandchildren end up building it and that all along James gets the credit for it that we see over in John's Yellowstone of current day. And what we will find out is that it was really the women and children who carried out his dream. I mean, even in tonight's episode of Yellowstone, if you guys had watched, John takes Carter up to Buffalo Valley and we learned it was his great grandfather who lied to the Park Service and said that the buffalo were all gone. But John's great grandfather knew the buffalo were gathered here. And it was that him and his great grandfather and grandfather drove them, meaning the grandfather had to be old enough to do it in the family lore. Once Yellowstone Park was established, drove them out of Buffalo Valley to the park so that they would be protected forever. So yeah, John Dutton places a lot of important Dutton history on the shoulders of his great grandfather. Never mentions his great grandmother. Right. Which I'm just saying in no, our no, 2021 world, so. yeah. I'm kind of curious about, you know, would they really leave behind, you know, Margaret and really not end up having her be, you know, a pretty big heroine of the story. So we'll wait and see. Interesting. And Taylor, and Taylor likes his strong women leads. I mean, look at Beth, Absolutely. look at Monica, look at Elsa and look at Margaret. So this is Caroline. And this is Mike. Thank you for listening to the Yellowstone podcast, 1883 episodes. If you wouldn't mind heading over to Apple podcasts or Spotify podcasts or where Ever you listen to podcasts and rate, review, and subscribe. And while you're there, especially at Apple Podcasts and Spotify Podcasts, if you could leave us a five-star rating, that would be fantastic so that we don't have to poison your water and make you sick and so you don't die. If, if you guys, if you don't leave us a five-star rating, you may drink bad water. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you.